Jesus. You guys can be seated. You know, <laughs> singing I Surrender is so good and so dangerous all this time. Has anybody ever done that? And then you're like, wait, wait, I didn't mean surrendering that. Oh. You know, I think uh, I think God is up to something. Body of Christ, if this thing starts going in and out, just wave at me and I'll move to the handheld. These things aren't made for women's hair and big earrings and clothes, you know. Maybe if I clip it on the outside, is that better? And the wire's not all crazy. Try that. I think God is is up to something in the body of Christ. And I've noticed, um, you know, our whole world is is sort of being unraveled. And I think the church is too, and I don't think it's a bad thing. It's like a holy undoing of of religion and and system and all of this stuff. And I believe that the Lord is just positioning his people for encounter. And if you stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit then you'll be right where you're supposed to be. But if you don't allow this holy undoing where you move into the position of encounter, uh, then sometimes you can just feel like you're missing it. And it's not because God isn't doing something, and it's not because he doesn't want to encounter you. It's because somehow along the way, we've just done church like normal, and we've turned off our our sensors to the Holy Spirit, and we're just expecting him to show up the same way, right? And I think about um, the story of, of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Now, this, this story picks up in Elijah's life after he has just had the amazing contest with the prophets of Baal. It's one of my all-time favorite stories and one of the most famous stories of a contest of God's power where he goes against all the prophets of Baal who say that their God is the real God. And he says, no, my God's the real God. And they both build sacrifices and the prophets of Baal exhaust themselves trying to get some fake God to show up. And then Elijah prays, fire comes from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And it's like, yeah, this is the living God. And he kills all the prophets. And it's like, yeah, this is awesome. But then there's an evil queen and she's really mad about this. And... Elijah is escaping for his life. And so he runs away and he's hiding himself in a mountain. This is a very famous passage of encounter with God, right? Because he's up in this mountain and it says that there was fire that comes down, right? But it says God wasn't in the fire. And then there was an, an earthquake and it was shaking the whole mountain, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a mighty windstorm and there was all this wind, but God wasn't in the wind. And then there was a still small voice and it was the Lord. 
And Elijah wraps himself in his cloak and he goes out to the entrance of the cave and he has this meeting, this encounter with the Lord. And God tells him, like, this is what you're going to do. He puts him back on assignment. He gives him mission. Now, what's interesting is that most scholars believe, and even some of your translations, it'll say that this mountain is Mount Sinai. If you know anything about Bible history, Mount Sinai is the mountain where Moses met with God. That's where he receives the Ten Commandments. Now, here's why this encounter is so significant. Because when Moses, so many years earlier, is on the very same mountain, God shows up to him in wind, in fire, and in earthquake. The whole mountain is shaking. There's fire from heaven. There's wind like crazy. And it's this insane encounter with God. But this time... Those things are happening and it's not God. God is in the still, small voice. See, there's no formula for the way God shows up. And sometimes it's loud and dramatic. And other times it's quiet or even silent. But just like on Mount Sinai, God can be in both. So don't get trapped in a lie that you didn't hear from God or receive from him because it didn't look like what you thought it should, or it didn't look like it did last time, or it didn't look like this person's. See, that's one of the greatest tragedies in the church is that we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put it on ourselves or someone else. And we think that our encounters should look like this, 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 and this. And so we've had this amazing dramatic encounter. And then when we come before the Lord again, we don't recognize him because it's quiet. And then we think, did I even get anything? Has that ever happened to you? Or you can be in the same room with people all in the same worship and you're like, what's going on with that person? You know, they're like all like, oh my gosh, you can just tell they're like in the zone, right? And you're just like, I'm just like singing the song. But see, our God is encountering everyone. It's figuring out what he's saying to you. And I think in this time um, of just like an undoing of the church, we have to just be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and figure out what is he saying and what is he doing. And let's not put him in a box to say, you have to say it or do it like the way you've done before. Wouldn't it just be so much easier if he would just do it the way we want and the, the way he always does it? Come on. I mean, really. It would just be so, so much better for me. It would just be very obvious, like, oh, yes, that is the Lord, in fact. Uh, but, it, you know, sometimes it just requires us to have faith. Even after all these years of walking with Jesus, we still have to trust that we're, we're able to hear his voice and able to hear it in a different way than maybe we ever have before. So that wasn't really my notes. So that was all just, there you go. It's free, as John says. That's right. Yeah, that was all free. Now to the message. Don't worry, you guys. I have to tell you, we were gone all week. 
We were gone all week. John and I preached Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night in Seminole at this uh, small church, and we just had so much fun with them, and it was so good. The last night I preached, I think I preached for like an hour and 15 minutes. I'm not even kidding. It's the longest I've ever talked in my life. I'm not going to do that today, so just okay. Everybody just take a deep breath right now. Ashley's not preaching that long. I've been like replaying that in my head since I was there. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I talked that long. I mean, I was talking about them um, escaping out of Egypt. I'm like, somebody should have just stood up and said, Pharaoh, let my people go, you know, like, stop talking already. I don't know. Sometimes, you know, is it the only thing I can describe it? I've never done this before. I like you just preach until there's breakthrough in the room. That's what I was doing. I'm just like, I'm just going to keep talking till I see that there's breakthrough happening. Then once we got to that point, I'm like, okay, let's respond. Now that you guys are all engaged, let's, uh, let's respond to the Holy Spirit. It just took us an hour and a half to get there, but it was good. It was so good. Thank you for praying for us. We had this, such a great time, uh, and Jesus showed up. Uh, so today I want to just talk about about setting our gaze and positioning our heart for God encounters. And, and this just, it has to happen, right? If we're going to, if we want to encounter God, if we want to live our life well for Jesus, we have to set the gaze of our heart on him and we have to figure out how do I position myself for encounter? How do I, how do I make myself sensitive enough where I am engaged with Jesus, even in my everyday life? And so, so what you have your eyes and attention on will be what you produce in your life. And I have this crazy, weird story from Genesis that I want to pull a kingdom principle out of. It's the most weird story, but just hang in there with me for a little bit, okay? So Jacob, this is a story of Jacob, and he is having father-in-law issues, you know, I I hear that awkward, you know, don't make it very obvious if your father-in-law's in in the room. Um, But, you know, he's having father-in-law trouble because Laban, his father-in-law, has been kind of crooked the whole time. Uh, And Jacob is taking care of Laban's flocks. And so they, they, they have this sit down together, Laban and Jacob do. And Laban's telling him basically like, I've been so blessed since you've been walking, since you've been watching my sheep, like everything. I'm just, I, I've, I've increased in my wealth and my favor and it's all because of you. And he's finally kind of recognizing that. So he's like, Hey, how should I, this is in Genesis 30, by the way, if you want to go back and read it, I'm just going to recap it for you. So he's like, how can I, uh, how can I repay you? And so Jacob comes up with this idea, which later, if you keep reading, it's actually inspired by a dream that he has. And he says, okay, how about this? How about you give me from your flock every animal that is spotted or striped and all the black lambs? And that way, when you come and check on my herds, you will know if I have stolen from you because they're... If, if I have a white sheep, clearly I've stolen from you because I'm only going to have the black ones. Or if any of my livestock are, are pure and they don't have the speckles and the stripes, then you'll know that I've stolen from you. So Laban's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Now being the little crooked man that he is, he goes that night, he takes all the speckled, uh, sheep and, uh, and the black sheep out of the flock and, and sends them away. But they begin this process, right? So this is Jacob, who's the great de- deceiver. All right. He has this plan. I believe it's like Holy Spirit strategy. This is not breeding. This is not a real breeding program, okay? He takes tree branches 
and he carves them so that they're striped, right? So there's like black and white stripes. And he puts them in front of the livestock when they go to drink. And they're looking at this stuff, right? And when they go and have their drink and they begin to mate, all of the offspring are speckled and striped. And he begins to work the system, right? So he starts taking the speckled and, and, and spotted sheep because that was the thing. That, so he gets like the big, strong males, right? He puts that, that branch in front of them. And what they reproduce is a speckled and spotted sheep until he becomes so wealthy and his flock is huge, Okay, again, this isn't like a real breeding program. This is obviously something supernatural. I don't think this is going to work just like if, if you go try this out on the farm. But the kingdom principle here is this. What you behold is what you will reproduce. See, the thing that holds your gaze is what you will ultimately give life to. And you, you begin to think about that. I began to think of like, what is in front of you? What are you looking at? And so like my first thought, right? I'm, I'm sure some of you are like, what's in front of people's faces? Your phone, right? Oh, look, mine just went off right when I picked it up. It's an update from CNN. Isn't that lovely? Life-giving. I get Fox News too. It's okay. Some of you are like getting really worried about me right now, right? <clears throat> What's in front of your face? What's in front of your face? What has your gaze? See, if you, if you think about people's phones and you think about what it is on the other side of the screen that you're staring at, let's just take that for a second. Are you staring at news all the time? Is that what you're taking in? Because if you're taking in news all the time, what you're going to reproduce in your life is fear and confusion. If you're looking at social media all the time, and that's what you're constantly taking in, you will begin to reproduce comparison and jealousy because you are taking all of your time to gaze at the highlight reel of someone else and comparing it to your real life. So some of you just need to be reminded that social media, people put their highlight reel on there. And then when we're scrolling through it, we're comparing it to our real life. So we're like, oh man, that husband gave her flowers today. When was the last time John gave me flowers? Are we live? I hope John's watching right now. <laughs> you still have time. I'm going to preach for a little while longer. <laughs> Live streaming's awesome. Okay. When you're comparing your real life to somebody's highlight reel, see, so you can get into that game. Like, oh my gosh, they're always so together. Like they didn't say I got the flowers because like we had a massive fight last night and my husband's trying to make up for it and I really hate his guts today, right? 
I mean, some people do post that. If you're here, here's another, here's another free something for you. Okay. If you're in the house, you shouldn't be posting your real life on Facebook. Okay. Just go with the highlight reel because we, we want to honor our spouses and our children. Okay. So you shouldn't be bashing people. But what, what holds your gaze is what you're going to give life to. How about shopping? How about online shopping? Some of you are giving me nasty looks right now. If that's in front of your face all the time, what you reproduce is materialism and greed. Because the longer you stare at a screen and shop online, the greater your desire is to have more and the less satisfied you are with your current stuff. None of those things are bad. I'm not saying like technology is amazing. Social media can be great. There's some, there is some life giving stuff on social media, right? There is some, some things in the news that we want to be aware of. There is a whole benefit to online shopping. Amen. But it's what holds your gaze. If on the other side of the screen, you're staring at pornography, then you're going to be reproducing destruction and shame in your life. Because what you stare at is what you will reproduce. You will be giving life to something. So what is it going to be? What has your attention? What are you taking in? What are you staring at? See, sometimes we have to ask ourselves uh, hard questions like that and allow Jesus to confront our brokenness so that we can grow and break patterns of apathy or destruction in our lives. If we're not willing to ask ourselves the hard questions, if we're not willing to engage Jesus on this level, then you can just move into managing your darkness. Because if transformation is not happening in your life, that is ultimately what you will be doing is managing your darkness. And Jesus doesn't come with these hard questions to be like, so what are you staring at? Yeah, I know it's bad. Can you just get yourself together already? Like that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is saying, You're made for something more. I have something so much better. I am so much better. I can fill the places in your heart. What are you staring at? What has your attention? The only thing that can give birth to life and hope in our heart is Jesus. His word and his testimony. See, everything else is a cheap imitation. Shopping can't ever fully satisfy us. Social media can never fully satisfy us. The news certainly is never going to be satisfying, especially not right now. But when we begin to fill our lives with Jesus and the power of his testimony and his word then what comes out of your life is hope. You reproduce life. You reproduce hope. You reproduce strength. You reproduce miracles. You see the supernatural because those are the things that you're putting in front of you. 
Because Jesus in his goodness refuses to allow us to stay in that place. And if we just turn a blind eye to those things, we miss out on transformation. See, Jesus wants to call us to new maturity rather than affirming our mediocrity. And right now is no time for a mediocre church. I think God's like, we just can't. We just can't because we, we are the answer to the world. You are the answer to the hurting world. I just want to remind you of that. Like that is God's plan. A is that his church, the whole church would take the whole gospel to the whole world. There is no plan B. So we're it. And there's a lot of times that we can get kind of just caught up in like, I'm mostly good. Right? Like I've experienced so much freedom and I love Jesus and I'm, I'm just doing my thing. Right? And there's sometimes when we can just kind of settle in that. It, it reminds me of the rich guy who comes to Jesus and he's like, hey, I've kept all these commandments. You know? And he's like, I'm doing good. Right? He's like, I have kept all of your commandments. And Jesus just speaks right to his heart and says, if you want to be my follower, go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. And this man who followed the Lord religiously and kept every law couldn't do it. And it was like he came to Jesus wanting him to just affirm like, yeah, you are on track. And instead of just like affirming his mediocrity, Jesus calls him to a higher level of maturity. Say like, yeah, you've done awesome on that, but there's this one thing. Can you do this one thing? And there's sometimes when we just come to that place with the Lord, when we're confronted with those questions where Jesus is, is making an invitation to you, not out of condemnation, but really out of being your cheerleader to say, Hey, there's this one thing you want to, you want to go to a new level in the spirit with me. Hey, do this thing. And we're just like, I just want you to say, good job. Just stay where you're at for a while. Is anybody else there? You know, like, I don't want to change anymore. I don't want to be transformed today. I just, I just want you to be like, you're so awesome. And he is saying that too, right? Because Jesus is always affirming who we are. But when I'm coming to him with the question of how can I follow you better? He sure doesn't hesitate. He sure doesn't hesitate to say, hey, how about this one thing? Could you lay that down for me? Jesus wants to call us to something new. So how do we do this? What does it look like? How do we, how do we shift our gaze? How do we get, begin to position ourselves where Jesus is what's in front of us and not all this other stuff, right? Because Clearly we live in this world, so there's going to be a lot of things in front of us. I'm not talking about like quit your day job and just stare at the word of God all day because I know we all live in, in a world. I'm saying what, what holds your heart? What's capturing your attention in your free moments? And I want to look at Mary in the Bible because it's so powerful. It's really about our connection to Jesus and our posture in the spirit. So we're going to start in Luke 
chapter 10. Okay. And I'm going to start in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples continued on their journey, they came to a village where a woman welcomed Jesus into her home. Her name was Martha, and she had a sister named Mary. Mary sat down attentively before the master, absorbing every revelation he shared. But Martha became exasperated by finishing the numerous household chores in preparation for her guest. So she interrupted Jesus and said, Lord, don't you think it's unfair that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? You should tell her to get up and help me. And the Lord answered her, Martha, my beloved Martha. Why are you upset and troubled, pulled away by all these many distractions? Are they really that important? Mary has discovered the one thing most important by choosing to sit at my feet. She is undistracted and I won't take this privilege from her. All right, so this is our first account of Mary in the Bible and I always, I can't hardly read it without laughing because um, how many in the house just relate to Martha? There's just so much work to be done. She's just always hustling, you know? Uh, she's on it. But here is our first account of Mary where she's sitting at Jesus's feet, taking in every word that he's speaking, just absorbing it all, completely undistracted and choosing the better part, as some translations say. And so this is where you see her just in connection to Jesus. All right. So the next, the next place we see her is in John 11. And I'm going to start in verse uh, 28 now to give you a little bit of the backstory so it makes sense. Mary and Martha have a brother named Lazarus, and he's dead. Now, several days earlier, they sent for Jesus saying, Lazarus is dead, or Lazarus is very sick, and we need you to come. Jesus did not come immediately. He stick, stuck around and did, did some ministry, and now he's showing up, and Lazarus is dead, and he is like dead, dead. He's been in the tomb for over three days now, and this is where we're picking up. Jesus is walking into town. And this is Martha. Then Martha hurried off to her sister. Have you Now, every time you read about Martha, she's in a hurry everywhere, okay? She hurried off to her sister Mary and called her aside from all the mourners and whispered to her, the master is here and he's asking for you. So when Mary heard this, she immediately went off to find him for Jesus was lingering outside the village at the same spot where Martha met him. Now, when Mary's friends who were comforting her noticed how quickly she ran out of the house, they followed her, assuming she was going to the tomb of her brother to mourn. But when when Mary finally found Jesus outside the village, she fell at his feet in tears and said, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. 
And when Jesus looked at Mary and saw her weeping at his feet and all her friends who were with her grieving, he shuddered with emotion. He wept. He was deeply moved with tenderness and compassion. And he said to them, where did you bury him? And he goes on to raise Lazarus from the dead. But here we find Mary in the exact same position as before, only this time it's not just in connection, listening to Jesus speak. It's in her great disappointment and grief. Because Jesus didn't show up when she thought he should have. See, she knew that he was the hope. She knew that Lazarus could have been saved. Now, this is not even on their grid at this time that somebody could be raised from the dead, and especially not four days later. Like there was like this little teaching that it was like if it was in the first three days, then it could be a maybe if you believed a certain way in a certain sect, but uh, now all hope is gone for that. But where is Mary She comes to Jesus and she's at his feet in her grief, in her disappointment that he did not come when she asked, that he did not come the way she thought he should have. But instead of pulling away, we see her here bowed at his feet, still declaring his lordship. If you would have been here. He wouldn't have died. Has anybody ever said those words to the Lord? If you would have been here, or is that just me? Just me? Okay. Uh, But that's where Mary is, at the feet of Jesus. Now, the next time we see her is in John chapter 12, just the very next chapter. Starting in verse 1, six days before the Passover began, Jesus went back to Bethany, the town where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They had prepared a supper for Jesus. Martha served. Big surprise. And Lazarus and Mary were among those at the table. Mary picked up an alabaster jar filled with nearly a liter of extremely rare and costly perfume, the purest extract of nard. And she anointed Jesus's feet. And then she wiped them dry with her long hair and the fragrance of the costly oil filled the house. Now again, when we see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus in extravagant worship for who he is, giving everything a costly offering of extravagant worship to Jesus. When we choose a posture of being bowed before Jesus in our connection, in just hearing his voice, in our, in our just learning from him and connecting with him, in our grief and our pain and our confusion... And in our worship, it produces a depth in us and fans into flame the fire of his presence in our lives. It's at his feet. And then when you, if you take this one step further and you think about all of the scriptures that talk about Jesus's authority, right? It's everything is under his 
So then when I, when I position myself at the feet of Jesus, I am also positioned for authority at the feet of Jesus because everything else is beneath his feet. And when I make Jesus the one who holds my gaze, when I'm positioned with him as my focus, when I can come before him undistracted and set aside my hustle and the need to be busy and serving and all of those things, then I have chosen the one thing. I have fixed my gaze on Jesus and what will be reproduced out of my life is deeper desire for him. It will be revelation from heaven. It will be healing. It will be miracles. It will be the fire of God's presence and the desire for him that continues to be birthed in me. And in our ever-changing and and instant, fast-paced culture, we can either feel like we can't afford to slow down or we just get frozen in fear. We just, like, you just freeze. And sometimes we forget that the kingdom of God has not changed. The kingdom of God is not confused. It's, it's not putting out new mandates all the time that are contradictory to, to the ones from last week. The kingdom of God is operating the same as it always has. But in our culture, right, we live in this place where it's like, do we wear the mask? Do we not wear the mask? Can we shake hands? Can we not shake hands? You use hand sanitizer. Now they've all been recalled. You know, it's like, like all of these rules, like you got to wear your mask in the restaurant, but then you take your mask off once you sit at the table at the restaurant, because apparently the germs don't go once you're sitting down. I don't know. I'm so confused. Is anybody else confused by our life right now? And so, see, we live in, in our world is so confusing and it's fast and it's changing all the time. And sometimes what we do is we begin to automatically translate that to the kingdom of God. But the kingdom does not operate that like that. See, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His authority is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The way Jesus operates will be the same today as it was yesterday, as it was in the Bible. Because Jesus is the same. And we live in a spiritual kingdom that is not confused and is not changing all the time. See, and we have to, we have to remember that. See, I fear the church has become so taken with what's going on in the world that we've forgotten to be captured by what the kingdom of God is doing. See, we, we become more captured with our world and it's quite fascinating, really. If we're honest, I remember when we were out of town for spring break and the whole world was shifting in like a few days and it was wild, you know, like I have people calling me. My mom's like, there's nothing left in the grocery stores. What do you need? Do you need me to get you something? I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, you need toilet paper? I'm like, I don't know. I I don't know what I need. And she's like, they don't even have pasta on the shelves, Ashley. I'm like, what 
is going on? Right? So John and I on our way home from Houston are stopping in every teeny tiny Texas town at every family dollar trying to get like dish soap and toilet paper and a few, and a loaf of bread so we can feed our children because we're like, what is going on in this world? And I remember it was just like the NBA shut down. Like, what is going on? This has to be serious, right? They're closing sports and millions of dollars of operations and and I, we were in Houston. I was just checking the news, checking social media. I was like, oh, this is crazy. I went to the grocery store and I was like, never in my whole life could I have imagined empty shelves like this. It was nuts, right? And right in the middle of that, I just got this question from the Lord speaking of him asking us hard questions sometimes. He said, are you more fascinated with your world or mine? Oh. Are you more fascinated with your world or mine? See, because as rapidly as COVID was changing our culture, the kingdom of God moves just as rapidly. It's being released all over the place. There are miracles to be done. There are lives to be changed. There are people coming to the kingdom. There are encounters to be had. The kingdom of God is always on the move, regardless of if COVID says it can be or not. It's always moving. There is no amount of isolation that can drive out the kingdom of God. There is no amount of quarantine that blocks out Jesus and his kingdom from moving, from multiplying. And you know what? When the days get darker and the days get more confusing here, I just have a feeling that the kingdom of God moves even more rapidly. And we get to be a part of it. See, if I become more fascinated with what the king is doing and what he's wanting to release on earth, then I begin to align myself there. I begin to find the people at Dollar General and begin to release the kingdom of God there where hope is being released, where healing is being released, where provision is being released, where answers to prayer and strength are being released. If I become so fascinated with this world, then what am I doing? I'm out hunting for toilet paper. Like, what do I really want to do? Whose world are you more fascinated with? When those are the things that are in front of us, that's what we reproduce. When we look around and you see what's being reproduced in our culture, we can figure out what we're looking at. I mean, just look at uh, at the spirit of division. And it started taking over the church. Capital C, not this one. Clarification. The church as a whole. I, I get on social media and I'm like, why is that leader arguing with that person? People that I know personally that I'm like, Have you lost your mind? See, if we're not guarding our heart, if we're not putting Jesus in front of us, if we're not taking time to stay bowed before him, it is so easy to align ourselves with the spirit of this age. It's so easy to step in and in the name of Jesus, argue over politics, over mandates, over whatever. I'm not going to really step in too much, but I think we can all understand what's happening. See, and then what happens is the church, we just do it in the name of Jesus, right? 
Because, right, because we love Jesus. So I'm just going to argue with you and call you names in the name of Jesus. Um, But all I've done is I have taken myself and made an agreement with the spirit of this age and not with the kingdom of heaven. What What is King Jesus saying about the election? That's what I want to know. I don't really care what any other human has to say about it. What is Jesus saying? What is, what is Jesus saying about COVID? What is Jesus saying about Midland, Texas? What is Jesus saying about my neighbor? What is Jesus saying about my children? See, when I begin to ask myself that and I begin to focus on the kingdom of God and I begin to put all of my focus and my heart's desire and my gaze fixed on Jesus and what he has to say, then I begin to reproduce life. I begin to multiply the kingdom out of me rather than multiplying division rather than multiplying confusion, rather than multiplying fear. I mean, there's some of us, listen, I'm not meaning to step on people's toes, but when you're watching the news and then you're calling people and you're afraid and you're like, oh my gosh, did you see this? And can you believe it? Then what you're reproducing is fear. It's fear. Catch yourself, put your eyes on Jesus, learn to be positioned like Mary. And listen, I realize this preaches better than it lives. Okay. This preaches well, but it's not always easy to live out because we live in a world where there's stuff at us all the time. And there's people that we love who are not gazing on Jesus and their voice is there, right? There's all of these things. So I understand that what I'm saying, everybody's like, amen. But then you're going to, how do I, what, what does that mean? (laughs) Find a strategy that works for you that keeps your focus and your gaze on Jesus. Begin your day with scripture. Make sure you're reading God's word every day. Okay, now I'm not talking about like, okay, now everyone, you need to set aside three hours every single day and you need to have this soaking time where you envision Jesus in front of you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the desire of your heart, the gaze of your heart. When you have free time to think, when you have free time to do things, where is your heart running? What, where is your mind running? You should make time for God's word. It's worth it. If you have to get up a few minutes early, if you have to stay up a few minutes late, if you need to take two minutes out of your lunchtime, if you need to take your Bible with you to the bathroom and lock yourself in at work for one minute just to put some truth into your mind, do it. When you're getting up in the morning, put on some worship music. Flood your house with worship. Create an atmosphere where worship is on for your children, for your husband, for whatever, where you're just, because you know what? It's hard for me to have worship on and be singing it and not start thinking about Jesus. It's positioning myself at his feet in worship. And and I think that's the thing is learning how to do this when life is good and when life is not. And that's what I love about Mary. It does not matter what's happening in Mary's life. She's always at the same place, even in her pain, even when Jesus didn't show up like he should have. Where is Mary? At 
his feet. She's not pulled back from him. She's not isolated. She's not like, I'm not talking to you ever again because you didn't show up. She is voicing it. God, if you would have been here. But where is she doing it? At his feet, in her pain, in her confusion, in the middle of death and grief, Jesus is positioned, or Mary is positioned at Jesus' feet, bowed down before him. Just in connection, in listening to his voice, she is bowed at his feet, taking it all in, when she is worshiping extravagantly. One of the most famous recordings of extravagant worship there is. She's at his feet. And so this morning, I want us to close with communion. I want to give you a moment to just reconnect. Maybe, maybe it's been a little bit. And that's okay. Like, listen, this is not a message that I'm trying to whip you into shape. Maybe you just need to reconnect with Jesus. Maybe you just need to be like the, oh man, I've been so busy that I have not stopped. Or I have just been so focused on something else. I need to adjust my gaze. Maybe it's like you're just looking at what's being reproduced out of your life and you're like, that's not Jesus. You know, how do you know if what you're gazing at is Jesus? What is, what are you reproducing out of your life? Is it chaos? Is it fear? Then that's not Jesus. Guy, would you turn on some worship for us? Something good. I was going to pick out a song and I forgot. So I want us to just take a moment and I thought, what, what better opportunity than to just close with communion? where we come to the table figuratively today, obviously, that the Lord has prepared for you. See, he prepares a table for you, even in the, in the middle of your enemies. Jesus has made a way for you to connect with him. His, his body and his blood have broken through every barrier, everything that so easily entangles us and gets us so distracted. And so I want us to come and I want us to eat this nasty little styrofoam cracker. Sometimes you just got to say it, you know? We all think it. We're doing real communion someday. (laughs) But in that, it's It's recognizing Jesus. It's reestablishing connection. It's putting your heart on him. When you begin to think of Jesus, the one who came to earth in a body. The one who became our living hope. The one who would suffer and be tortured and have his body brutally beaten to the point of death for you so that you could live the life with your gaze on Jesus and reproduce life and the kingdom so that you could live free from sin 
so that you could live free from sickness and disease so that you could live fully connected to the father jesus the one who became our ultimate sacrifice the one who died to break the power of hell and the grave and now is seated above it when we come to his feet he's the one who made a way for us to sit in heaven with him The one who shed his blood for your life. The one who understands grief and suffering and loneliness more than any other human in this building. Jesus, the one who who knows pain on a level that most of us don't. The one who was willing to do it out of his great love for you. This morning, would you return to his feet? Would you return to his heart? Would you begin to dwell on his sacrifice and his great love for you? Would you surrender your life to his? Oh, Jesus, this morning we fix our gaze on you. We readjust our heart and our posture in the spirit. And God, we repent for being so caught up with this world, for being so fascinated by politics by being so fascinated by COVID and our ever-changing culture. Oh God, we return to your heart and say, we want to be more taken with you, with your sacrifice. With your kingdom. And so... We just bow down and worship Jesus. We position ourselves like Mary did at your feet, which is a humble place of adoration, but also a powerful place of authority. Thank you, God, for releasing encounters in the house today whether it's loud and dramatic or whether it's still and quiet, we invite you to speak to our hearts. We want to be captured by your voice. And God, for those of us who are just in the season of grieving and loss and confusion and pain, Lord, we come before you in that moment too. Even if all we can say is, oh God, if you would have been there. but we will still come at your feet because you're holy and you're good and you're worthy and there is no amount of pain or grief that can change our theology of our good God.
And so, Jesus, we remember you today. <laughs> and I just get, I, I just am reminded, like, sometimes in really serious, holy moments like this, we forget, like, I just sense God's delight. Just like the smile of his heart. So welcome and warm. to receive us, even if it's just like, oh God, it's been a while. I'm so sorry that my focus has not been on you. It's like, he's just smiling with arms open wide to embrace us. Thank you, Lord, that as we come to your table, as we take of the bread and we drink of the cup, that you fill us with life, that you renew our hope because Jesus, you are hope. You are the living hope. We choose to remember you today and we set our gaze on you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can take your stuff. guys can take as long as you need. I'm going to have some uh, leaders up here. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, if you've never surrendered your life to him, maybe you've never understood the gospel in all of its fullness and you want to make that decision today, I invite you to come to the front. See one of our leaders. They'll, They'll pray with you and teach you about what that means. The other thing is, if you need prayer for anything else, and especially healing, if you need healing and you have not received healing yet this morning, we invite you to come forward and have our leaders pray with you. If you want them to agree with something else, it's up to you. But the altars are open. You're welcome to sit here and just soak a little bit more. And uh, I am excited to see what the Lord does in you this week as you reconnect and have your yourself just positioned at his feet. I believe that there's power in that and that there will be so much good fruit coming from your life because of it. So have a great rest of your week. Come get prayer and uh, come on Wednesday to do some treasure hunting.